This is Take a Bow, the show exploring anything and everything around Asian food. I'm Lo Ijun. This episode, the episode you're about to hear, is part two of a two-part story exploring the stories and the struggles of refugees in Malaysia and finding out how one organization has changed the narrative on that through food. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I highly, highly recommend you start with that one first. It'll make a lot more sense that way. But if you're here after listening to part one, welcome back. Now in the last episode, we followed Kim, the co-founder and CEO of Pitcha Eats, a Malaysian social enterprise that's changing the lives of refugees through food. Pitcha Eats works with refugee home cooks to sell their food to the Malaysian public and share their cuisine and flavors with the country. We also heard the story of Nisrin, a Syrian refugee who fled her home country in search of a safer, more hopeful life. And safe to say, Kim's organization has been a large part of that. So in this episode, we'll be picking up where we left off, digging deeper into understanding the struggles and hopes of refugees, and we'll also cook some hummus and falafel with Nisrin. Also, I'd like to thank Project Dialogue for supporting this episode. They picked Take A Bow as a grantee for the Diverse Voices Media Grant, and really, this episode would not be possible without them. Project Dialogue is an organization that seeks to foster better understanding between and beyond the different ethnic, cultural, and ideological groups in Malaysia. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit their website, projectdialogue.com. Picking up from where we left off last episode, we were in Nisrin's home. Nisrin is a Syrian refugee who now lives in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia's capital. Following our conversation about her struggles in Syria and her life now in Malaysia, Nisrin invited me into her kitchen to cook up some Middle Eastern staples. And what exactly did we cook? Falafel and hummus. Hummus the chickpeas and uh, tahina and uh, some sour, some salt, and make the blend, blender. Now, now you see how. <laughs> now you see how we can go. We started off with the hummus. Nisrin brought out a whole bowl of cooked chickpeas. Chickpeas that she simmered in water for over two hours until they're really soft and almost breaking apart. Some chickpeas, I cook in chickpeas around two hours. Around two hours. Ah, so these are already cooked, right? Yeah, already mm. cooked. Already cooked two hours. Two hours, around three hours, like this. Because mm. it's so soft. Mm. And I put tahina. Oh, you move very fast. <laughs> oh, no. Now slowly, slowly, because I need you to learn and understand more. <laughs> As you heard, once we got started with the cooking, I felt Nisrin's energy instantly spike as she moved around the kitchen with so much pace and authority. I was ready to be schooled. So, to make the hummus, Nisrin poured the chickpeas into the food processor and blended it with some tahina or sesame paste, some water, as well as a few ice cubes to keep the hummus from overheating. I put some water. Mm. Some 
and some ice. Oh, you put ice? Yeah, just one. Oh, it's really smooth. Yes. Mm. Do you have hummus every day? Mm, yes. Oh. <laughs> because all like it here in breakfast, uh, the hummus. What is the what is the secret to very good hummus? Uh, put the salt sour after after the blender the blender chickpeas blender and little uh, water and some ice mm. and later put salt uh, sour salt ah okay 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 you use a uh, lemon juice and lemon ah once the hummus was out of the blender Nisrin added in some lemon juice, adjusted the seasoning with some salt, and that's the hummus done. It's really quick and easy, and Nisrin's experience with making hummus every day definitely showed. Next, we moved on to the falafels. Nisrin made a falafel mix with chickpeas and alliums, some herbs and some sesame seeds as well. Okay, so what do you have inside here? Have uh, parsley, onion, garlic, um, and chickpeas. Mm. Chickpeas, but uh, no cooking. Just I put in the water around ten hour. And sesame, uh, sesame in English. Sesame. Sesame. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Sesame. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, in Arabic. Ah, in Arabic. Ah, sesame. Sesame ah. in Arabic. I waiting for oil need the oil very hot ah, because if oil. if no hot the falafel as we waited for the oil to heat up almost at smoking point Nisrin ripped up a little kitchen gadget that I've never seen before it's a falafel scooper it's like those ice cream scoops you know the ones with a release mechanism so all you have to do is drag the scoop through the falafel mix and just press on the handle to release it into the hot oil. Oh, and oh. is this a uh, for? Yeah, this one for, for falafel. Oh, okay, I okay. Put here, like this. The one time I made falafels at home previously, I used my hands to make these balls of falafel before dropping it into the oil. But using this scooper just makes things so, so much easier. So I tried my hand at frying up some falafels with Nisrin, using the scooper of course, and I think I did a decent job. But after our brief kitchen adventure, we brought a food out to Nisrin's dining table and ate it together. Oh, the outside is super crispy. Mmm. Must like this. Mm. Crispy, outside crispy, and inside, full cooking. Mm. Last time I make at home, not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, you can call me, I help you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> oh, it's nice. <laughs> the outer shell of the falafels was super crispy, and the insides were fluffy and still steaming. 
and the pops of sesame in the falafel mix gave it a really nice nutty aroma as well. I have to say, I think Nisrin's falafel was the best I've ever had. I'm not even exaggerating here. And though I did help fry up a few, I don't think I can claim any credit for how good they were. But as we ate, as with most meals, the conversation inevitably turned to food. We started talking about the differences between Malaysian and Syrian food, and I asked Nisrin about her thoughts on the food of my home country. Malaysia and Syria are very different, very different. Malaysia put uh, sugar, sugar inside, I'm very spicy, you know. In Syria, no put sugar, never no put sugar in, inside the food, and uh, no so spicy, no put chili inside, very different, you know. <laughs> but for someone who has never tasted much spicy food before coming to Malaysia, Nisrin has taken to it surprisingly well. In fact, she adores the sweaty spiciness of Malaysian food. I like it chilly. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. It's like when you come to Malaysia, originally you didn't eat a lot of spicy food in, in uh, Syria, right? Uh, yeah, I very nice. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, yes. Uh, and your children and your husband, do they like spicy yes, food as well? husband likes spicy, daughter likes spicy, but uh, no, the small boys, no. Mama, so, so, so spicy, no need. <laughs> So when you came to uh, Malaysia over the past few years, you slowly started cooking more Malaysian food as well? Uh, I learned so many. I learned rindang, chicken rindang. I, I learned also yisan salad and uh, chicken gulai. Very different for in my country in Arab dish, you know. What's your, what's your favorite uh, Malaysian dish? Chicken gulai, I like it. And rindang, I like it. Yeah, I like it too. Rindang and chicken gulai, really, I like it. Man, this is what I live for. Sharing and learning about food from one another, me getting educated on hummus and falafels by Nisrin, and her learning and understanding rindang and chicken gulai from the many Malaysians she's met in her eight years here. Now, I know, all this might seem a little softball. This whole feel-good take on food bringing joy and wonder food being the solution to Nisrin's problems, and food just connecting people. But the reality isn't always so rosy. So let's get back to the heavier, deeper topic at hand here. In the last episode, while Nisrin did share about how living in Malaysia has been better and safer for her and her family, and how, with the help of Pitcher Eats, she has managed to support her family through food and cooking. Despite all those things, there are still many hurdles for her and for the wider refugee community as well. Just for starters, her children's education is not guaranteed. Basic healthcare is expensive, she's not allowed to travel outside of the country, and her job security is near non-existent. I wish go to out Malaysia, go to Europe, because uh, the Syria now no future. In Malaysia also, for me and for my children, no future because no visa, you know. Here, same the big gel. I cannot go out because no visa. If I have visa, if, if I am businesswoman, if I have uh, so, so much money, I can go out. But Malaysia, very nice, the view, very nice, the people, very nice, the safety. But uh, just no future. Mm-hmm. Example, if sick, 
I need to go to doctor take from Malaysian people 15 ringgit from Arab 100 ringgit oh. yeah yeah double you know this house if you need the rental uh, maybe 1000 for uh, for uh, for Arab 1500 ah uh, like this always different 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 because know my country just I stay I very like it but know my country mm. So you don't plan to stay in Malaysia long for a long time. After that, you uh, hopefully go to go to Europe. Yes, mm-hmm. maybe one years around one years I go to Europe. Uh, maybe uh, one years around one and a half years like this. Mm-hmm. Mm. Europe have a visa, have learn for children, mm-hmm. new life. Yeah, good for me. I wish go to go to Europe. So it isn't surprising then that Nisrin plans to eventually head to Europe to live somewhat of a more normal life. Now, it has to be said at this point that every country has their own approach towards the treatment of refugees, their own set of governing laws that either restrict or champion the rights of refugees. And there's a lot of factors that determine each country's approach. I'm no politician or lawmaker myself, but I think it's safe to say that there's a lot more work to be done with the laws and restrictions in Malaysia. And Kim, the CEO of Pitcher Eats, who we heard from last episode, thinks so too. She's someone who has been working with refugees since 2012, and so she has a deep understanding of the struggles the community faces. And while Kim doesn't really dabble into politics, she agrees that the government and Malaysian lawmakers should have a more humanitarian approach in setting the laws and regulations around refugees. I would say have a much humane system, humane policy, uh, in a way that we can still take care of them, take care of ourselves and be able to prosper together. Um, really have to see that the value that refugees can actually contribute. Uh, you see, like we, we've partnered with 30 chefs, they all contributed to... Uh, making sure that people have food on the table, right? And it represents that uh, refugees are able to be a source of contribution if you allow and give them that opportunity to. And of course, beyond sweeping policies, people and the public have a larger part to play. And that includes us too. So I asked Kim about her hopes for the Malaysian public. What's your, and, and finally, what's your hopes or like a message you have for the Malaysian public, especially in terms of understanding or having more empathy for, for refugees? I think be a much understanding nation. Uh, let us all be much more kind to each other and generous. Um, I think during the MCO, there was a lot of xenophobia and uh, people discriminating refugees. Those hate shouldn't exist anymore uh, as we move forward as a nation and a much civilized uh, nation. We should think of ways of how they can contribute instead and how they can be part of a society. Uh, when people always say, you know, Malaysia is are only for the Malaysians, but Malaysians are, are made up of such a melting pot of culture. You have like Indian, Malay, Sabahan, indigenous uh, culture and, and Chinese you know we're already melting all together what's, what's more if you add more there's just more colours mm-hmm. and, and Malaysia will shine like a rainbow why not so, so I don't see why we have to 
put hate into the work that we do and into the nation, yeah. Let us shine like a rainbow indeed. That is quite a beautiful, hopeful image. And currently, Kim is doing what she can with the resources she has to work towards this rainbow dream. To date, Picha Eats works with 30 refugee home cooks, which sounds like a low number, but there's a lot of intention behind this. Yes, uh, 30 chefs, a very small fraction. Mm -hmm. 30 chefs of one chef having like five family members in a family. So it's 150 lives that we're impacting on a daily basis. Um, But uh, what we're looking into is deep impact. We're not looking into big numbers. Uh, Big numbers is always like touch and go. You, You can never achieve the depth that you want if you're looking into 10,000s, 20,000s, you can never do that. 10,000s and 20,000s, you probably create a platform, listen up, and hopefully there's customers that will look into your platform and buy from them. Um, yeah, and I and, and every chef works differently. They have they come with different, uh, you know, uh, social issues at home. So you have to be able to uh, take on those issues you we do have people you know with health conditions we do have people um with probably mental conditions so uh, th- there's more than just uh having them to produce food yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you you see like helping out a few number of people but going deep that is a lot better than you know being able to reach a wider community but maybe not be able to do as much for them yeah, yeah i think w- Picha's philosophy and mantra is to change lives one life at a time. And that philosophy is the key that has contributed to Picha Eater's success in the past four years. They've changed and impacted the lives of these 30 refugee families in a deep, meaningful way. And it hasn't just been a one-way relationship. The refugees themselves too have had a ripple effect on the wider Malaysian community and even taught Kim and her team many important lessons, giving them the zeal to forge on. As if to drive that point home, Kim shared with me a touching story towards the end of our interview. It's about a refugee chef that Picha Eats worked with. His name is Zaza, and he passed away from cancer not too long ago. I'll let Kim tell his story. So Zaza was our third chef uh, to be on board with us. He's like a pioneer chef with us. What was uh, Zaza's background, actually? Um, so he and his family are from Syria. Uh, so the three of them escaped from Syria because Syria was in war. Um, the 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 wife, Rania, was actually uh, sending the baby at that time uh, to the hospital to get a vaccination. But uh, it was just too dangerous. Bombing was happen- happening everywhere. Um, she She had to return home. And I find out that all the babies that actually got like vaccination on that day all passed away uh, because the vaccination was expired. But, you know, knowing that like you were very lucky, you didn't head to the hospital to send your kid to death. Uh, she knew that Syria was not a place to live on anymore. So uh, Zaza, as a professional chef from Saudi Arabia, uh, sold off everything they had, came to Malaysia, and then had to rebuild everything. He had to go through a lot of mm, shitty moments in the first two years. And then uh, he, we, we met with uh, Zaza. And that's where we started partnering with him and things changed uh, for good. So when I knew 
Zaza when we were going to his house. Uh, he actually don't speak a word of English, uh, so we had to like converse in very limited uh Arabic language or like uh very limited sign language. Uh, but the first time when we went into his house, he treated us like his family, and we thought, hey, why why got people so welcoming one <laughs> and uh when we sat at the table uh his kid was beside me and uh we just had conversations and then uh we told him just two person coming but he cooked like a for a village and we ate a lot of food at that time <laughs> what was some of the stuff that he cooked i remember there was like fatet mcdo's chicken fatet was definitely there and then biryani was there uh some some bites like kibbeh and things like this so from there we had like a very deep relationship because he was so kind. Every time we went to his house, uh, he would make us extra food. He would make sure we are well fed. He would make sure we are well rested. <laughs> so it's been a very meaningful relationship seeing him uh, going through from uh, nothing to something um, because he was like very proud of what he was producing and very proud of uh, his, his progress that he was showing us you know one day he was showing us you know I can finally afford uh, a cup of Starbucks like it was a very life-changing moment for us as well knowing that we could bring so much impact to one life mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I just mentioned Picha is all about you know changing lives one life at a time but uh, one year in in 2017, uh, we found out that he was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and then sent him to a, a hospital. In two months' time, he just couldn't make it anymore. Uh, so we lost him on May eighth, 2017. Uh, lost this very kind soul because he is a person that would prepare extra food when he see cleaners or like drivers or the security guards. Um, he's a person that said that he wanted to cook for people who are in need uh, around the masjid area during the Ramadan month before he passed away when he was bedridden. So you see such kind person that would do much more than what you would do, then how would you like react? You would be like, oh, what can I do more? So when he passed away, we created a movement called the Zaza Movement. So what the Zaza Movement works, how, how it works is that uh, in in his name, to commemorate him, uh, people will put money in, enable refugees to cope, and we will send them to people who are in need. So that's how the whole Zaza Movement came about. To date, the Zaza Movement has contributed over 25,000 meals to communities in need. And since the start of the pandemic, it has provided many more meals to frontliners fighting COVID-19. And although Zaza didn't get to cook at the mosque during Ramadan like he wished to do, I think he would be proud of what the Pitcher Eats team has done in his name. And on that note, our episode is coming to a close. I have to admit, when I first thought of reporting on this episode, I thought it would be a feel-good story about how food can help people, refugees in this case, and how food can be the bridge connecting refugees and the Malaysian public to communities of people from vastly different cultural backgrounds. But throughout the whole process of putting this episode together, there were just layers and layers of complexities that came up. There was the fact that many refugees who came to Malaysia were sold the false hope of a safe and stable environment here, especially in work, 
when the reality is they're not even legally permitted to be employed here. And because of this, and many other restrictions, refugees like Nisrin, who despite finding a better life in Malaysia, now feels trapped, like they're in a big, country-sized jail. And despite all that they've gone through, there are refugees like Zaza too, who not only touched and inspired people through his food, but through his warmth, earnestness, and love as well. Each one of these is a story in its own right, and there are many, many more refugee stories out there that deserve to be told. This episode, honestly, just barely scratches the surface. But my hope is that through listening to this, it has peeled back some of those layers, given you a better understanding into a world you never really knew much about before, and show you the powerful role food has to play in it. Thank you for listening to Take A Bow. We've reached the end of this special episode, and I just wanted to say, although this was quite different from our usual episode structure, where we get geeky over some culinary conundrum or the origin of an Asian dish, I thought this would be a really eye-opening experience to shine a light on the struggles refugees face and learn about the food they cook in the process, at least in the context of my home country of Malaysia. If this episode inspired you and you'd like to find out more about Pitcher Eats, you can head over to their website, pitchereats.com, where you can donate to their cause, support their newly launched ready meals, or contribute to the Zaza movement. Take a Bow is hosted and produced by me, Lo Ijun. Thank you so much to Kim and Nisrin, who are so willing to share their stories, and many thanks to Project Dialogue for sponsoring this episode. Finally, Thanks to Maglin Wong for designing our cover art. Just before I go, I've got a brief update about the future of Take A Bow. I'm still in the process of researching and conducting interviews and getting episodes ready for season two, but the pandemic has made things a little tricky, hence the delays. Not to worry though, I'm still working hard on them and I hope to start the next season early next year Thank you so much for being patient with me and for sending so many messages of support and love for this show. I've read every one of them and you've made this feel even more rewarding than it already is. Also, it's in part because of you guys that this show got featured on places like The Guardian, on Tatler, and on the Penang Art District website. So I hope you keep your eyes and ears peeled for the next season of Take A Bow. But until then, this is Jun. Bowing out.